0: Micah chapter six. We have one of those glorious verses from the prophet Micah, you know, that uh, he's kind of famous for really, even though it's a small book, it's a powerful book. And um, I love the verse that we're gonna read here. Um, But we're gonna read a couple verses, but it helps to set things up. And there's a bit of information and background that um, I think to really help understand why Micah says what he says. And what what does it mean and and how impacting is it? I think, and and really for us to understand that, we have to remember a few things. First of all, the Jews now uh, in Micah's ministry, they've been trying to keep the Mosaic law for centuries. Um, Keeping the law of Moses. Now, keep in mind, there's kind of, if you would, the law of God and the law of Moses. The law of God, we might say the 10 commandments. Um, But the law of Moses is those laws, 613 laws, given in the Torah for the Jews, the Pentateuch as we might call it, the books of Moses, um, 613 distinct laws that they were to abide by. Um, and if 613 isn't bad enough, you also, if you were a Jew raised in, you know as a practicing you know, Jew, you'd need to know those laws, all 613, and you also had to know which ones were um, things you must do versus things you are prohib- prohibited from doing. Uh, actually, they had to know 248 of them were things that you, you, you need to do, while 365 are things that you should not do. And even within those, the, the Jewish children would be taught, okay, so let's see now, we got to do 248 things you're supposed to. But even in that, there are 18 divisions within those things uh, of things you're supposed to do, do uh, that are categorized. And then within the prohibitions, the 365, there were 13 divisions of things not to do. And they had to know that. Well, then, then the Jews, as the centuries went by, they thought, man, this is, this is tough because what, is some, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? When you're supposed to do a day of rest, what does rest mean? So through the centuries, the Jews started saying, okay, we gotta define this stuff that the, the book of Moses gave us. We have to start defining. Like, what does it mean to take a day of rest? And they started through oral tradition, saying, okay, if you are carrying something heavy on the Sabbath day, that, that's work. So you can't turn out you know, and, and be carrying stuff on the Sabbath day. Well, how heavy is too heavy? And so they started, and all throughout the ages, through oral tradition, okay, too heavy? Well, if it's any object other than your body, then you're lifting too much weight. You're doing work on the Sabbath. Well, what about my false teeth? Yep, take them out take out your false teeth because you're carrying something that's foreign to your body. That's work on the Sabbath day. And so they started just through oral tradition coming up with all these ideas. Now, by the way, the Jews, um, it, it became what we might, we might have to kind of delineate here in, in modern days. We can say there was the Mosaic law, 3, 613 laws, but the Jews uh, started to write down these things. After, uh, after Jesus came and went, they wrote them down in what we, we know as the Talmud. Have you heard of the Talmud? Um, that's the Jewish writings. It has two components, the Mishnah and the Gemara. And um, the Mishnah was produced in about 200 AD, uh, where the Gemara was put out there somewhere around 500 AD. Um, but it's basically, um, you know, the, the Gemara is an elucidation on the Mishnah. Um, and so they're commentaries on commentaries uh, that the rab- rab- rabbis would write. Um, and um, it would it basically... Uh, um, add more and more to the, the rules of the 613 original rules that were from God. Now, if you recall, when Jesus came onto the scene, these traditions started to become really a heavy burden. You can't have your false teeth. and you, If you're wearing a wooden leg, unscrew it, because you don't wanna, like that, that becomes work for the poor person having to try to get around on the Sabbath day without a wooden leg. And it got to be oppressive. Now, now, do you remember when they accused Jesus of breaking the law? Remember that? Question, did Jesus ever break the law of Moses? The answer is no. No, Jesus was actually, it, it, Jesus even told us. He talked about how he didn't come to do away with the law. He came to what? Fulfill the law. Now this is important. Because remember when the disciples and Jesus are cruising around talk, doing their ministry and they come to this cornfield on the Sabbath day and they pick some corn. And the, the, the Pharisees freaked out. Oh, your disciples are eating corn, they're picking corn, that constitutes work. And, um, and, and then also, they didn't wash their hands. You see, in the 613 laws of Moses, it talked about very simply, wash your hands before you eat. Now, by the way, The law is amazing in that there's stuff that we're only now learning about the benefits that God knew about millennia ago. Um, All of you uh, people that are really afraid about the coronavirus, man, you washed your hands 40 times a day and your hands went raw, but you didn't have any bacteria. How did we, when did we learn that? By the way, did you know that surgeons didn't even wash their hands before they did surgery until the Civil War, 1865? That's when they started saying, hmm, I wonder if we should wash our hands before we... You know, we just handled this dead person. Now we're going to go do surgery over here. And um, there was actually a scientist who found this out. And it was an interesting story about how they realized, oh, washing the hands is actually a a pretty good idea. Meanwhile, the Jews, back during the bubonic plague a long time ago, they survived very well. And in all of Europe was saying, why are the Jews spared from the bubonic plague? And they they almost blamed some people in Europe, anti-Semites. They wanted to blame the Jews because they weren't being affected like everybody else. Though one of the reasons, they washed their hands because of their ceremonial washings. Kind of interesting. It's almost like God kind of knows what he's talking about. Um, but I digress. Um, so, so, you know, now by the time Jesus' time came, they had this really strange thing of, of ceremonial washing of the hands. And you had to use certain amounts of water and use eggshells to measure out water in the cup. And then you pour, you turn your hand, you know, one, one hand this way, pour the cup this way. And then you pour the cup this way. And it was very routine. And it really didn't do a great job washing your hands. It was just kind of the ceremonial cleansing. So when the disciples didn't wash their hands in the ceremonial way, ah, the disciples haven't washed the, their hands. Jesus, you guys are a bunch of sinners. And Jesus, he replied to that stuff. Like here in Matthew chapter 15, verse eight, this was one of his replies to this sort of nonsense. He says, this people draws near to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Not the commandments of God. In fact, some of the newer translations put this, they teach the traditions of men. And the Mishnah and the Talmud and all that stuff, those were the the commentaries that became more traditions and less uh, in line with uh, the 613 laws God originally gave the Jews. Um, So it's interesting. We have to be careful, by the way, with our traditions. Be really careful. Um, Jesus really thumped these guys that had their vain traditions that really, what it, they lost the heart. You know, the Sabbath day became this horrible thing that, man, you better just not do anything bad on the Sabbath or you're going to hell. But here's the thing. Uh, Jesus said, you guys, man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. It was meant to be just a nice day of rest, a blessing. But you guys have turned it into this crazy tradition you know, um, of all these rules and regulations. And pretty soon the Sabbath days, Jesus, he heals a poor guy that has a withered hand. He heals him on the Sabbath. Ah, he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Like, like, where is their brain? Like, there's a guy that was healed. Who cares what day it is? Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath, but it was because of their stupid rules. By the way, we have to ask ourselves here at 8th of Greek, what are the rules or the things that we believe that aren't in line with God's word. That's what we have to constantly ask ourselves. And we do. It's interesting to me. It's easy to see it on other people. It's harder to see on yourself. So that's why you have to kind of pray about that. For example, you know, as I read the scriptures, one of the the groups of people we have at Athey, we have a large group of the Slavic community, which I love. We have our Russians and our Ukrainians here at Athey, which we love. and um, at the same time, it's funny because they all come and say, oh man, I can't get my mom and dad or my grandma and grandpa to come to Aethy Creek. And I always say, well, why, why won't they come? And they, there's always one answer, you wear shorts. <laughs> because you wear shorts, grandma's never coming to Aethy Creek. Um, because that's the unpardonable sin, as it turns out. Uh, uh, As it turns out, that's, you know, and and I get it. Um, You know, some of you were raised in traditions, not just the Slavic church. Some of you in Baptist communities, whatever you, man, you had to wear a suit and tie. I remember when I was a little kid, I had to put on my little tie, you know, the clip on tie and the uncomfortable shoes. And I had to go to church. I hated church when I was a little kid because I had to get dressed up. Um, But, but, you know, I I get it. It's it's okay if somebody says, man, I just think Sunday, it's a nice day to dress up. And if that's your heart, then that's great. But as soon as you start making that a rule, you see, The Bible says nothing of that. In fact, it actually sort of teaches the opposite. The Bible says man is the one who looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart of man. And nowhere in the New Testament do you see them getting all gussied up for church. Um, They just kind of came in their one set of clothes they had and they came very normal and even Jesus didn't get all fancied up. It's interesting to me how suddenly man's traditions becomes the, the showstopper. And that's where you have to be really careful. And I'm not just talking, you know, that's just one example, but that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Lord, what are we doing here at Athe that we think is so good and important, but maybe isn't in line with your word? That's what we constantly, our, our leadership, we're constantly praying about that and saying we wanna be in line with scripture. Well, by the time Jesus came around, they'd lost the spirit of the law completely. And Jesus, that's why they considered him an outlaw because he was constantly breaking, not the Mosaic law, but the, the traditions of men, that was the problem there. Now, once you start putting in all kinds of laws, what's human nature? What is human nature? What do we do with laws, anybody? Figure out ways around it. Law loopholes is what I, I call it. Um, like, what, what are some of the law loopholes? Well, it's so funny because, um, you know, the Jews have figured out loopholes to their Mishnah and their, uh, you know, the Talmud and all that stuff. And it, it's actually pretty funny when you look at it. Even today, even to this day, the Jews figure out ways around all the rules and regulations, especially in modern times. Um, in ancient times, one of the things the Jews did was um, they would tie, you know, you, you were stuck at your house and you couldn't travel certain distances and you couldn't carry anything except maybe in your house, but you couldn't go anywhere carrying anything. So they thought, well, what if I wanna to go to the neighbors on the Sabbath? So what they did is they took um, sheets or ropes and tied their doorknob to the neighbor's doorknob with a long sheet tied together, ropes. And then those two houses became one. And suddenly you can go over to your next door neighbors and have a great time and carry whatever you want between the two. And they thought, well, if it's two houses, why not make it 10? And so they, they seriously started tying ropes and sheets around that. Now you're not gonna believe this, but just look it up, check my work on this one. Did you know today the Jews have an elaborate system that links whole neighborhoods together all over the country in the United States so they can go wherever they want on the Sabbath? Um, it's actually kind of a funny thing. Uh, NPR did a thing on this recently. Um, a fishing line encircles Manhattan protecting sanctity of Sabbath. Um, and this is a true story. Uh, in, in Manhattan, you know, you, those of you that know Manhattan, this is where this little fishing line goes all the way around a big circle and is tied to end to end from building to building and goes all the way through this area where a Jew on the Sabbath can go anywhere they want in Manhattan now and carry whatever they want on the Sabbath because they have a fishing line connecting it all together. You don't believe me. Like, like this is a legitimate thing. Did you know this fishing line, you can see it. Uh, you can go see it. And every Friday morning, these rabbis go out and they double check the fishing line to make sure it's all intact. So that when the sun goes down on Friday afternoon, which is when Sabbath begins for them, they, they can make sure we're all good to go. And they even send a message out, good to go. Fishing line's intact. Now the Macy's Day Parade a couple years ago, one of the big floats bumped into the fishing line and broke it. They had that thing fixed up before the Sabbath, ready to roll, um, because they didn't want to miss being able to go all over Manhattan during the Sabbath day. Um, And by the way, they have a budget. They spend over $100,000 a year just keeping this fishing line uh, up and running, Uh, kind of interesting. Now, when you go to Jerusalem um, on these law loopholes, um, one of my favorite ways around the law that's very clear is the Sabbath elevator. Do you guys know what the Sabbath elevator is? If you're in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, whatever you do, don't get on the Sabbath elevator. The reason why is because the law says you're not supposed to kindle a fire. Well, the Mishnah says, well, any kind of kindling of fire, if you strike a flint or if you light a match or if you, and in modern times, even if you flip an electronic switch, you are kindling a fire with that electric signal. And so you cannot turn on lights. So when you go to hotels, you have the Sabbath lamps that just automatically turn on at whatever time in the day. Um, but the Sabbath elevator is an elevator. You, you don't have to touch anything. You don't have to push a button because it stops at every single floor and opens the door. So, so now this is funny. If you're at like a you know, 15, 20 story building, uh, it takes a long time to get down. Like you, you, I've gotten in the Sabbath elevator. I'm like, why are we stopping at every floor? You know, and, they, and the Jews are looking at me like, you know, um, vey. like, what, what's the deal with you, man? You, um, don't you know what the Sabbath elevator is? I've learned, just whatever you do, don't get in the Sabbath elevator because you don't have to push any buttons, that's nice, but um, it stops at every single floor. Um, But that's the way around. And you've heard me talk about the pig farm that is in There's actually two big pig farms in Israel. One, the way they get around is you're not supposed to raise pigs in the land of Israel. So what they did is they built a huge deck that's a couple feet off the ground, giant deck. And the pigs are standing on a deck, so they're not technically on the land of Israel. That's one one of the pig farms. Another pig farm, by the way, which is kind of interesting, is um, the Kibbutz Lechav. Now that, for you Bible students, that's where the old city of Ziklag was actually, if you know the stories of David. But um, in the the, uh, Kibbutz, uh, uh, in this Kibbutz uh, Lechav, they basically, uh, they started back in 1952, a place where they did research Scientific research, and they used pigs as research because pigs, in some ways, are interestingly linked uh, in the way that um, some of the human organs function and stuff like that. So, you know, for research. But what ended up happening? They're still doing research. And by the way, uh, if you learn about this kibbutz, there's been some amazing uh, discoveries scientifically at this at this kibbutz because they do the pig uh, whatever. But what's really funny is it's also become quite an amazing, I guess they need a, did you know they have more than 10,000 pigs that are being raised at this pig farm? Um, And any extras that they might have. Now, how many pigs do you need for research? Uh, You don't need 10,000, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of bacon that comes from this research center. (laughs) And all the secular Jews and people who don't care about eating bacon, they have plenty of bacon because of this research center. Um, and it's just kind of funny. So, so, you know, that's the problem with the laws and all the, the heavy burden the Jews have put on themselves, the law loopholes. Now, then the question becomes, um, are you and I supposed to keep the law of Moses? Well, of course we shouldn't have to worry about the traditions of the Jews, but do we keep the law of Moses? Well, um, this is where I think a lot of people are kind of clueless and it's kind of sad. By the way, um, even Barack Obama, when he was president, he made this fundamental goofy error when he said, What are we going to do? Follow the Bible? Remember when he said this? Should we keep the law of the Old Testament and, and, and take our kids out and stone them to death? And that's a guy who just didn't really read his Bible, or his speechwriters didn't have a clue about the way it all works. But, the, the truth is we are no longer under that law as, as Gentiles, for sure. We're, we, it's an easy uh, you know, thing because, because, well, as it turns out, the law was there to serve a purpose. Some of you might say, well, if I'm not under the law, then why do we even talk about it? What a waste of time. Well, there's two reasons why we talk about it. The smaller reason is what I told you about the washing of hands. I think there are some practical lessons that we can learn by seeing what the Lord tells the Jewish people about the Mosaic law. We can learn from that. But more importantly, the law does serve a purpose. Um, we're told, um, you know, by the way, uh, you know, there's some of the laws I've got it down, no problem at all. Like, I, like Leviticus you know, 11, 19 says, you're not supposed to eat bats. <laughs> Living victoriously, I am not eating bats. It's uh, not something I'm really struggling with right now. Um, <laughs> But there are some laws that a lot of us would struggle with. Like for example, if you speak ill of your parents, you're to be taken outside of the city and stoned. Obama was right, that is there. But uh, how many of us would have survived that? Um, You see, the point is, you and I, we cannot keep the law. And and if you would, it's almost like the Lord says, I'm gonna give the law to the Jews, the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and they're our best foot forward. Uh, You gotta give the Jews credit. They have tried for millennia now to keep the law to no avail, but they were our best foot forward as far as humanity goes, trying to keep the law. No one um, can be uh, saved by the keeping of the law. In fact, um, it it reminds me of James chapter two, verse 10, that says, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Boy, that's a tall order. Uh, to try to keep every point of the law. But this is the point of the law, to show humanity that we are not good enough, that we cannot save ourselves. The law serves a purpose to show us we need something else other than rules and doing and keeping laws. We need something else to save us. And this is where Paul, the apostle, by the way, expert on the law, Paul was, uh, you know, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was schooled by a guy named Gamaliel, who was like the big, that'd be like, you know, getting taught math by uh, Einstein or something. So, so Paul was like the big gun when it came to the law. But listen to what he said. This is Galatians chapter three, verse 22. He said, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. In other words, we're all guilty of sin. But it says, um, all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our, what? Schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." We're saved because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid our penalty because we couldn't keep the rules and regulations. We've all sinned, we all have fallen short. And so when we have faith in Christ, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. Ephesians 2 8 says, but it's a gift of God, not by of ourselves, the scriptures say. So what did the law do? It was a schoolmaster. Now, a lot of you don't know what a schoolmaster is because you, many of you were raised in the era where teachers, everybody gets a blue ribbon and you know, you're know you all wonderful and, and uh, all that stuff. I went, to, I went to a school that was maybe 100 years behind the times. I remember when I went from Roosh Elementary School, we moved kind of away from that uh, little, little town where I lived in Roosh, Oregon, and we moved just a few miles down the road to Applegate, Oregon. Now, it's like going from the Beaver Cleaver Elementary School. That was my Roosh Elementary School. And then we moved to Applegate. And when I went to Applegate, there's this little schoolhouse that was built in 1911, red bricks with a little bell tower on top, kind of the one room schoolhouse sort of vibe. And then I met my new teacher. I'm not gonna call him a teacher. I'm gonna call him a schoolmaster, Mr. Alexander. Man, there's a guy you didn't mess with. Mr. A, he, he was scary. I'll tell you what, the first, the first day I, I sat in that class, I was in sixth grade. And he just sat at his desk and looked at me the whole time. That was my first day of school. And, and then I learned something. He had, he had something that the other kids, you guys know? he said, Brett, do you know about the nose picker? And I'm like, what's the, what's the nose picker? Well, you know the teacher pointer thing? He would take that and set it kind of end on his desk. And then he'd rest his right nostril on top of that, that pointer. And just kind of, the nostril would be lifted up a little bit. He'd just kind of look around the classroom as it was sort of lifting his right nostril. And if anybody was being bad, he would take that pointer and whack you know, on their desk and it just made the whole class jump. But here was the big one. On the wall, hanging next to the storage room door. Now let me explain. The storage room at this 1911 old schoolhouse—it went. it was kind of a, a, a dark room that you'd open up and half of it was built out with old concrete and stuff. The other half was kind of a cave with rocks and dirt. It's like it's where the building ended and went into the dirt and it was sort of this storage room back in this damp, dark, scary place but hanging next to the door was a two by four. It was about three feet long. It had a handle c- cut into it. And, and the two by four had his name, Alexander routered into the, the board. And it was bright red, painted red, but the letters were painted white. And uh, they call it, he called it Big Red. And, and I, I saw that and I, I said, does he actually use that? And the teachers the kids are like, oh yeah poor Jamie Wilson, man. I remember Jamie Wilson. He, <coughs> I, I bet he had Alexander permanently emblazoned on his. Um, I'm serious. That poor kid, he got, he got it several times when I was there. I was <coughs> sort of shocked. You'd, you'd see him take him into the storage room and whack, 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 whack. <coughs> now, some of you are like, that, that man should be in jail. But you know what's funny? This is the truth, and I, I kid you not, as scary as Alexander was, especially the first few days, I was like, oh, this is horrifying. Um, and what have I done? You know, moved to this town. And, but um, uh, all the kids would agree in that class, Mr. Alexander was our favorite teacher of all time. He really was. It was kind of a funny thing. Um, there's something to that, but I'm not going to digress into that conversation. But <clears throat> when I think of a schoolmaster, that's what it is, that scary schoolmaster that, drives you like, ah, I don't want anything to do with that. And, and that's what the law was meant to do, to make us look at the law and go, Whew, we, we wanna go the opposite direction of that. We cannot do that. If you try to live by the law, you're gonna die by the law for eternity. And that's what Paul says. It was our schoolmaster to bring us, to drive us, if you would, to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, you say, okay, Brett, enough information. What about the scriptures? Well, let's go here. Micah chapter six, uh, verse six is where we'll begin. Um, and the people here are sort of asking, if you would, is saying, here's what the people are saying, rhetorical questions to God. And notice there's a horrible attitude here from the people. Check it out. Micah chapter six, verse six. The people are saying, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now pause for a second. Uh, Don't read on. Look up, stop, put your pencils down. Some of you are still reading. What is he going to say? What is he going to say? Now, now, do you understand how ridiculous the people are being right now? They start, what are we supposed to do, God? You want us to bring the offerings, burnt offerings, the, the, the calf, you know, of a year old? Well, that first question is, well, yeah, that's part of the Jewish law, you're supposed to do that. But then, like always, they, they started to be exaggeratory and said, then they said, will the Lord be pleased with, pleased with thousands of rams? Well, the Lord never asked that of them. He didn't say bring thousands of lambs or rams. And then they even get worse. Or with 10,000 rivers of oil. Oil was extremely expensive in those days. And to, to talk about having to bring God 10,000 rivers of oil, um, that's just you know stupid. God never asked that of them. And then they get the most ridiculous of all. What do you want us to do, God? They're saying, bring the firstborn of my, for my transgression, for the fruit of my own body. In other words, sacrifice our firstborn children. Is that what you want, God? Do you see the problem here? the people, they're, they're sick and tired of trying to keep the law and do their little sacrifice there in t- the temple in Jerusalem. And, and they're, they're starting to put stuff that God never even asked of them. Um, they're, they're, they're weary of that. But Micah then gives them the answer from God. Um, and I love this. And this is where we get to verse eight. Micah says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God." Powerful, that's why this verse is one of the more famous verses of the Old Testament because it's so good. He's already shown you, oh man. And now this is where we have to kind of break it down a little bit. He hath shown thee, um, as it says here. Um, We already know. The Lord already gave you what you're supposed to. He's shown thee. Well, what is it, the 613 laws? Well, as it turns out, one of the things that the Jews are gonna have to learn is that the Lord wants to show them with what they already know in their heart. The old covenant written of the law, the new covenant is that where the Lord writes on the table of men's hearts, his will. In other words, he's given humanity what we call the conscience to know already what to do. That's why when you were a little kid, when you were stealing from the cookie jar, you knew that was wrong. At least you tried to tell yourself it wasn't. It's just a cookie. I remember my mom would say, Brett, no more cookies. Okay, mom. She'd walk out of the room and I'd figure out how to organize the cookies and take one and make it look like one wasn't actually missing. And then she'd come up and say, "Um, Brett, did you take a cookie? You know, as a four or five year old kid. I wasn't a very good liar yet. So I said, no. I had chocolate, you know, on my face, <laughs> you No. Know. Um, why, why wasn't I a good liar right out of the gate? I mean, why, why couldn't I pull it together? Um, you know, m- mom says, you know, Brett, did you take, oh, come on, mom, give me a break. I don't even like cookies. <laughs> <laughs> like, why didn't I come off a little more confident? Because <laughs> I knew I was guilty. Isn't it funny that um, you have been given what I like to call the knower. You know what's good. In fact, when I do counseling, one of the things I'm always amazed at, most people, when they say, Brett, what should I do? But they almost always know what to do. They know, the Lord has given them a conscience to know, what you're about to do is wrong. Brett, you know, my husband, he's kind of a jerk and he's gained a few pounds and he leaves his socks laying around the house. Should I divorce him? And what she's looking for is Pastor Brett to give her the A-OK, yes, dump the jerk. (laughs) He deserves to be left. Um, That's what you wanna hear, but your knower in your heart, you, you know, I'm not supposed to do that. Actually, marriage is a covenant that you've made. And, you know, it doesn't talk about leaving socks around and being grounds for divorce and stuff like that. Um, so you're knower. You already know what to do. And oftentimes people will try to finagle that and push down their conscience, their knower, and say, uh, I, don't, I don't really know if that's right. Isn't it funny? Even the devout atheist. There's things that they just have been given by God, who they don't believe exists, but in their heart, they still know it's wrong. Um, This is so important to understand, You know, the the atheist that says, well, there's no God. Well, then what makes adultery wrong? Isn't it funny how adultery is still pretty much deemed as bad, even by the atheist? Um, You know, it's interesting because if if God doesn't exist, what makes anything bad? You can do whatever you want. It was uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who is a Russian Christian novelist who said, if there is no God, all things are permissible. Which is true. If there's no God, you can do whatever you want. And who, who knows what's right or wrong? Well, murder is wrong, why? Maybe that person needed to be killed. By the way, there's, there's people today that are making those arguments, but that's, that's also another story. The German secular philosopher, Immanuel Kant, wrote that even though we cannot know for certain if there's any God or anything, um, we must live as if there is a God, he said. Why? Um, he said, otherwise there can be no standards of morality. If no God exists, this secular non-believing guy said, then, then there's, there's absolutely no standard. And so they called it Kant's pretend morality. Pretend that there's a God and live your life accordingly. That's what he, that's what, but that's fallen apart over the centuries and Dostoevsky's prediction has come true. If there is no God in people's heart and mind, then you can do whatever you want. And so today, in, in today's more, you know, climate of moral relativism People believe it's right you know, to follow their own inclinations. But you know, it's, what's interesting is there's a horrible morality that's prevailing today because people are pushing down their conscience that God has given them. And the Lord's already shown them what they're doing is wrong. And they feel guilty, but then they, they make up reasons why they feel guilty. Well, the reason I feel guilty because I'm you know, having sex outside of marriage is not because it's actually wrong. It's because my parents built it within my heart to believe that it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage. So I've been corrupted by, you know, uh, you know is it nature versus nurture or whatever they wanna say. Uh, the truth is God's already shown you what's right. He has shown thee, oh man. Um, and what an important thing that is to just acknowledge that God has given you a conscience. Um, that should be one of the evidences that God exists, that you have a sense of morality. And even the atheist thinks, you know, adultery is wrong. And yet there are some who are trying to make that argument, well, adultery isn't wrong, it's okay. Well, ask your wife if that's okay and see what she says, or your husband. Well, she just needs to grow up. She just needs to stop being such a prude. Uh, that's not gonna work for you, pal. Uh, you're gonna be in big trouble if you commit adultery because it's a sin that God has defined and it is a sin against your wife. And the Bible makes that perfectly clear. Um, isn't it interesting? The Lord, he, he's already shown you what to do. That's, that's your conscience. So Micah starts that. What are we gonna do, God? You know, give sacrifices of our children? No, he's already shown you what he requires of you. And then he, and then he breaks it down, not 613 rules and regulations like the law of Moses, but instead three simple things to remember. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Man, this is worth our time of prayer and considerations. First of all, jot down, to do justly. Um, the Hebrew word for there is an interesting word that if you look it up in a Hebrew dictionary, it means to do that which is right, fair, or equitable. To do the right thing. Um, and this is something that goes along, by the way, with the Jewish laws. You know, The laws of, the, of Israel uh, had, to, had a lot to say about doing the right thing. Um, like, for example, you know, the, the, the Jews had in Proverbs 11.1, one, that whole thing, a false balance or scale is an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is his delight, it says there in Proverbs 11.1. One. But the idea is when you'd weigh out your tomatoes at the market, they would put their weights on the counterbalance and see how, mi- how much your tomatoes weigh. But what they would do is they would they would have an, an unjust weight. So they would hollow out some of their weights. Um, and even though it said you know, one shekel's worth of weight. Um, They hollowed it out. So it's really like three quarters of a shekel worth of weight. And so they rip off the people and they rationalize. Well, we worked hard for these tomatoes, so they owe us more money, so let's hollow out our weights. And they were called unjust weights. That's what that scripture is saying. But the Lord says, don't be people that are unjust. That's an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. The Lord delights in honesty and integrity and doing that which is right. It's interesting how what we do is sort of rationalize a way that what we're doing is wrong, even though we know already that it's wrong in our heart. We know it's wrong, but we try to push that down and say, no, I'm just going to do this. And it's okay. This is the right thing to do. And we try to tell ourselves that. Maybe one of the worst things we do in our culture today is abortion. If you really think about it, you know, these little children being formed in the mother's womb. The Bible says it's a person who God loves and cares about from conception forward. And this idea of of how can, you know, if if you really look at it, if you look at it biblically, it's a no brainer. But even if you look at it scientifically, have you seen the 3D imaging now of the child in the mother's womb? It's so amazing. The little child sucking its thumb and interacting with the mother's voice and the little cartwheels it's doing in in the womb. And like these little babies, when you see them in that beautiful 3D imaging, you're like, That's a little person in there. And it really, even at very early parts of the pregnancy, you're like, wow, this is a little heartbeat and they can feel pain um, and they feel comfort. But, you know, so even science screams that it's murder. If you just, it's so crazy. Um, In one hospital room, they're doing in vitro surgeries. Have you seen this? Where they'll actually do surgical procedures on a baby in the mother's womb to save its life. But in the next room over, they're doing abortions, pulling out a perfectly healthy baby in pieces because it's not convenient for the mother. Meanwhile, you have Planned Parenthood saying, it's really just a fetal tissue, it's not a person, it's all, you know, and, and you, you deserve to give yourself a break and you're not ready for a baby and, and you can rationalize and push down your knower that knows that it's wrong and you have that pit in your stomach and you know that it's, it's horrible what you're about to do but you've got a lot of voices saying, no, 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 it's all good, it's all good. And here's the problem that nobody deals with, um, except for I think a lot of people in ministry actually, where 10, 20 years down the road, that poor woman who had the abortion is feeling condemned and grief in her heart because of something she knew at that time, or the young man that encouraged his girlfriend to go get the abortion, he feels that same guilt and condemnation. And nobody wants to talk about the psychology of that, like the the hurt that comes years later after an abortion. And by the way, I gotta say this, I'm, I'm so thankful for the merciful Lord that we serve because guess what? Abortion is not the unpardonable sin, according to the Bible. And if you've had an abortion or if you're a young man that encouraged a girl to go get an abortion and you're guilty of that, guess what? The Bible says he's able to forgive us of our sins. His mercy endures forever. And he's able to give you a clean slate. That's the good news of the gospel. But sad to say, that's gonna be one of the ones, I believe if the Lord should tarry, which I think he could come back at any moment, but if he does tarry, I think a hundred years from now, we're gonna all look back and realize that abortion, the whole act of abortion was worse than slavery in our history of our country, killing millions and millions of babies. And, and, and the Lord's just saying, man, you know what to do. You already know what to do. Do justly, do the right thing, the Lord's saying here. A UCLA professor posed this question to his medical ethics class. How would you advise the following patient concerning pregnancy and the possibility of an abortion? The father has syphilis, the mother has tuberculosis. Their first child was born blind. Their second child died at childbirth. The third child was born deaf the fourth child contracted tuberculosis from the mother. Now the mother's pregnant again. 70% of the class of the students said abort the child. Congratulations, said the professor, you've just aborted Beethoven, for that was his family's history. It's an interesting thing how God has a plan and a purpose and oh, it's okay, yeah, it's better if you could do the abortion. Of course, in that situation, that's the right thing to do, but it's actually not. Do justly, do the right things. Um, and, and so important to, by the way, um, one thing that you, parents that are gonna be pregnant or are pregnant or whatever, be cautious today about medical advice. Um, if I had a, a dollar for every time a young couple who was pregnant got this word, you know, it's possible your baby is Down syndrome. Um, you might consider abortion. Um, by the way, Debbie and I were told that by one of our doctors. You know, it's possible one of your children uh, you know, is, is gonna be Down syndrome. And uh, would you consider abortion? And it was hard for me to, to not remain calm. Um, I was thinking, what does the Bible mean when it says the laying on of hands? Um, <laughs> But I was able to keep calm and I said, you will not suggest that to me or my wife, not one more time. Um, now what's interesting about that is of course, our, our, our kids are not Down syndrome, they're all great and healthy. But even if it was a Down syndrome baby, you know what I've found with parents that have children that are Downs? That little child becomes the apple of their eye. It's like the Lord blesses them exponentially. I know it's a lot of work and I know there's challenges, of course. But at the same time, every parent that I know would say, I would never replace anything. Um, and yet here's the world saying, mm, maybe you should get an abortion. And by the way, the reason I bring this up is Debbie and I over the years have been shocked how many parents have been told the same thing. There's, there's so many parents that have been told, oh, this looks like possibly you need to do the amniocentesis or whatever and see, you know, and all this stuff. And it's just the world pushing its ugliness on us. Be careful, Christians. Do the right thing. Do justly. Um, Now, the second thing that that, uh, Micah says, he's already shown you to do justly. number, Number two on the list, to love mercy. Now, this is where we go back to last Sunday. Remember last Sunday, we talked about God's forgiveness and his mercy. Oh, I could talk about that all the time. I love that. Um, But um, if God, do you remember how we landed last Sunday? We we landed about how God's forgiving and he's merciful to us. But we also learned that the last point there was um, because God's been merciful and forgiving to you, you and I must be forgiving to others. Remember how we kind of ended there? And this is what he's telling us. You and I are to love mercy just like God loves mercy. God's mercy endures forever. You and I are called here. You already know. He's already shown you to justly, but also Love, mercy, be a lover of mercy, forgiveness, Um, being quick to forgive. Napoleon was gonna put to death a young man, but the mother heard about this and came and approached Napoleon begging for her son's life. Um, And Napoleon, the emperor said, the young man has committed this certain offense twice and justice demands death. But the mother, she said, sir, but I don't ask for justice. Um, I plead for mercy. But Napoleon, he said, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Uh, Mercy is not mercy if you deserve it. Um, And that's an important thing. If you're a lover of mercy, you're not looking for people to be repentant or sorry or better or good or anything like that, you're just loving mercy because for mercy's sake. (laughs) That's where that phrase came from, for mercy's sake. Um, That's why you just be a lover of mercy. I'm so thankful that God is into mercy. Next time you have somebody say, God's full of wrath and judgment and hell and all this stuff, don't forget to show them scriptures like Psalm 103 verses eight through 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He's not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as the father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Man, I love that passage. This is the God that we love and serve right here. He's full of mercy and grace. I love that. So all that requires the question, do you love mercy? Do you give out mercy as a lover of mercy? Or are you a stingy justice person? We need more justice today. I always say, be careful about that because do you remember what justice is for you and for me? Justice would be death and hell for all eternity. That's just, that's what we deserve according to the Bible. But good news, the Lord is merciful, so he doesn't hold your sins to your feet and say, you're going to hell. He doesn't say that, he says, I'm merciful and I'll put your sins as far as the east is from the west. Um, You know, there's an interesting scripture in Luke chapter six, verse 38. It says, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom, for with the same measure that you meet or give out, withal in the same way, it shall be measured to you again. Now, this verse was used for a long, long time by the prosperity gospel people. Remember all the televangelists, give till it hurts, put it in the bucket. You know, we're gonna pass the tithe and offering four times because we need your money. And if our, you don't get your money, then our ministry goes down and plant your seed of faith. As you put your dollar and you're planting a seed, um, that was all wacko. If you didn't know that, it was. It was totally wacko. But this was their champion scripture. Give and it shall be given to you. Plant your seed of faith. The measure that you give to the church is the measure it's gonna be given back to you. And that was their big argument. The problem with that, this is not talking about money. This verse has nothing to do with money. Even though they tried to use it out of context. If you read the the... The, um, the couple verses right before that, it says this, "'Be ye therefore merciful, "'as your Father also is merciful, "'judge not, and you shall not be judged. "'Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. "'Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. "'And then give,' give what? "'Mercy, and it shall be given to you. "'Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, "'running over, shall men give into your bosom. "'For with the same measure that you give out, "'mercy,' is the idea, That's the same measure it's gonna be given to you again. It's not about money. It's about mercy, love mercy. So he's already shown you, oh man, what to do. Do justly, love mercy. And then thirdly, finally, walk humbly. Because here it is, if you're doing the first two, man, I'm doing justly, (laughs) I'm pretty amazing. And I'm a lover of mercy. Mr. Big hearted forgiving, that's me. Oh, the third one, you're supposed to walk humbly. If you got the first two down, uh, you, you really need to make sure to cap it off with a nice dose of humility. Um, uh, you know, uh, look what the Bible says about pride. You know, it says in Proverbs 3:34, 34, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Now in the New Testament, the New Testament writers, inspired by the Spirit, quote from Proverbs 3, 34, but in the New Testament Greek, it sort of translates out just a little different, but I do like it. James chapter four, verse six, for God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter jumps on the bandwagon, first Peter chapter five, when he says, yea, all of you be subject one to another, in other words, submitted to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. Um, man, we already know what to do and, and pride is not one of the list of things to do. He's already shown you, a man. See, the people of Israel were pridefully saying, what are you gonna do, God? You're gonna make us give rivers of oil and 10,000 rams and all this stuff? No, no, you just you need to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly. So what's amazing about this is, you know, um, from 613 commandments of the law of Moses, Micah boils it down to three. You already know what to do. And, and remember the things that people were talking about is keeping the law. Are we, supposed to, you know, are we supposed to sacrifice a calf or rams? Um, but he says, you already know what to do. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Um, by the way, was Abraham or any of the Old Testament believers, were any of them saved by keeping of the law? Has there ever been anyone Um, that has been saved from their sins by keeping the law? Not one. Abraham was saved, and we know that because it says he was counted righteousness. What was it that Abraham did that made him count for righteousness? Yeah, he believed God, so it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's that's the same way we're saved, by the way. Um, So what I love about this is Jesus then boiled it down from Micah's three and Jesus boiled it down to two, you might even say one there in Matthew 22, when he said, then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, master, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus boils it down to two, love God and love others. You might even just say it's a one word deal, love. I, love. I love it that it gets all boiled down to just the really basics. And by the way, when it comes to doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly, who did it better than Jesus himself? If you need an example, a model for you to know what that you know, uh, Micah 6, 8 is all about, just look to Jesus. He's the one who did justly, loved mercy, walked humbly, um, what, a, what a glorious thing that is. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Brett, I'm pretty far from Jesus. And those, just those three things, forget the 613 rules. If I worked for the rest of my life on those three, uh, I'm sure I'm still not gonna get it. Well, that's where I love the Lord for his mercy. Because when I fail in doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly, when I fail in that, what I find is there's still a merciful God who gives me a new chance every day to get it right.